Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on our podcast on point tonight. We talk about the dangers of big tech and the overbearing power it has when it comes to the content opinions you get access to. France is doubling up soldiers on the streets after a yet another terror attack that saw three people murdered in a church and a woman beheaded because France is defending freedom of speech when it comes to the prophet Mohammed. And we'll talk about the punishment for a gangbanger who shot into a playground full of children because his target offended him on social media. Does his sentence fit the crime? Let's talk about that. Getting through to you. That's the point. You understand. There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. The good news is we're, we're seeing a little bit of a decline, but make no mistake about it. Please do not let our guard down. We can't. It happened before, and it just spiked up. So we, we see a little bit of good news. I say a little. Little good news or a little good politics? Premier and uh, his experts kind of seem to be saying two different things. And I'm not really sure where the middle is. Alex Pearson here with you on this Thursday, October 29th. And it is uh, great to have you along. It's been a very busy news day. This show's going to be packed tonight. And, um, and I get, I get that the Premier wants to offer hope. That I get. But um, when I was sitting listening to the uh, pointy-headed health experts... And I really wish these guys could just dumb it down. I just wish they could just speak like everyday talk. Uh, what my takeaway is that things are betterish, but in no way when you hear Dr. Brown talk, does he say that we should have a balance in our step? Compared to the projections that we showed at the beginning of the month, it looks that uh, current projections are much slower growth uh, and where we were concerned that we were close to a worst case situation, uh, analogous to uh, Victoria and Australia last time. We're much closer now to the situation in Michigan. We're estimating sort of a steady state uh, level of cases for a while of between 800 uh, to 1,200 cases. Uh, what I think is important here, though, is that although cases are continuing to grow, that uh, growth has slowed and we're starting to see a, a more gentle curve there uh, as we move through. So, so what Dr. Brown seems to be saying, and if I kind of undo all the spin, is that we, we just have to get used to seeing numbers in the thousand range, I guess, for a while, but they're not coming down. Um, and I'm going to get Dr. Jacobs to kind of undo the pointy head stuff so he can kind of lay it out. But I mean, my first thing is like, how do we know these projections are remotely accurate given the data is not complete? And we know this because of course, no one's doing tracing in the biggest hot zone, which is Toronto. But Dr. Brown did also say that uh, the big culprits are not the bars and the gyms. No, no, they're weddings. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter how many pleas you put out for restraint or, you know, not going out. People are just going to do what they want, you know, be damned the consequences. And uh, you need only look at the uh, morons in Vaughn who thought, yeah, gee, let's have a 100 person wedding. That sounds like a good idea in the middle of a pandemic. And of course, uh, out of that, we got a massive super spread event. Two weddings actually had uh, spread events, but the one in Vaughn saw 44 COVID cases. And then those who got it took it home to wherever they lived in the province. And then who knows where it spread from there. And of course, at the time of that wedding, which uh, was back a couple of weeks ago, York Region still allowed gatherings that big. But I mean, come on. To me, it's just a matter of common sense. 
do you really need to be told that hanging out with 100 people maybe not a good idea? I mean, uh, to me, it's just like every, like, that's just individual responsibility. But, you know, folks are going to do what they want to do because we're not in this together. Or maybe they just don't take those in charge seriously. And I got to be honest, it is getting very hard to take them seriously, especially uh, Dr. Teresa Tam. I don't know what planet she's on. COVID-19 has shone a real spotlight on the um, inequalities in um, health and in systemic in, um, um, gaps resulting in inequities. I do see COVID-19 as a catalyst for collaboration between health, social, and economic sectors. So Dr. Tam tabled a report Wednesday and... Um... The report, which I got a chance to read after the show last night, makes it very clear that uh, it's not about actually fixing a lot of the wrongs that she herself, uh, I think, is responsible for with this pandemic. I mean, instead, you get this report that that reads like a social justice utopia, this dream she's got for Canada. And this is a report that is done by the chief medical officer every year. And it is supposed to highlight, you know, the big health challenges and how do we address them? You know, what needs fixing? But like you would think this year, and it should be a no-brainer, and it should be about COVID-19, no? It should be about the mistakes made and the corrections going forward and a vision to health. But what we get is this globalist wish list. You know, it's called From Risk to Resilience, an equity approach to COVID-19. And then all 86 pages of it, you get Tam's vision for things like social housing, health equality, discrimination, ageism, intersectionality. I mean, really? I mean, she says it shone a light, this pandemic on, on all these things. Well, I'm sorry. What this pandemic did was shine a light on, on Tam and the Trudeau government's complete incompetence in, in confronting a virus that they knew was a threat and that we were in no way prepared for. And, you know, for a government that tells us every day that they're just too busy focusing on Canadians, you'd think that maybe Dr. Tam would be a little bit too busy to pontificate about things that will only play well to her academic friends at the United Nations, but offer absolutely next to nothing on correcting very obvious wrongs, like, uh, I don't know, why the pandemic warning system was shut down, you know, why we threw out or gave away the PPE why travel wasn't and still hasn't been shut down or maybe why her colleagues at the WHO waited weeks to declare this pandemic instead, you know, cause of course they were kissing China's butt. I mean, none of that's in this report and even worse. And as Blacklock's reporting reveals, Tam's report deletes all references to her completely bungled messaging on masks. Cause don't forget for months, Dr. Tam and Patty Hyde, they all told us how dangerous masks were. In fact, at one point, they gave us specific instructions not to wear masks, not to even wear them when you go traveling to hot zones like China. I mean, why were we even being told it's okay to go to China? None of that was in there. And it wasn't until April that that flip-flopped, but you're not going to find anything of that in this report. Because just like we saw with the we thing, Dr. Tan just uh, got out her black marker and just made it all go away. So I look at this report and uh, on the surface, I think people will say, wow, that's a real vision. But uh, it reads nothing more than uh, an ideological vision of what um, 
Canada should become rather than an actual vision of how she and her expert colleagues are actually going to get us the hell out of this thing. And it will like it'll play well to the activists and the academics. And I mean, in time, maybe it's a great conversation to be had. But for average everyday Canadians being destroyed because of Dr. Tam's utter lack of urgency, it does absolutely nothing to address these immediate health fails that she apparently and the government would rather whitewash. And um, I don't think anyone should be assured that this is going to change anytime soon. So here we are today and um, with numbers creeping up but not going down. Well, it was a pretty stunning exchange, and that was between Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and a Republican senator who was pressing him at a Senate hearing Wednesday uh, that was involving big tech and their creeping power to censor and suppress information that their CEOs don't seem to want you to see or have access to. And Jack Dorsey's company policy about misinformation is a little bit complicated. In fact, it doesn't make any sense. And by the way, he also resembles a very hairy, bearded, homeless mountain man. Um, so it's a very off-putting look for him. But when it comes to posting misinformation or fake news, he says his company policy does not include posts on Holocaust denial. And I think what's becoming quite clear is that Dorsey himself doesn't deny that. And he will censor Donald Trump but he won't stop you from posting absolute fake news on millions of Jews that were killed um, back in, in World War II. John Robson, National Post columnist, also the executive director of Climate Change Nexus. I mean, I, I found um, the interviews and, and what we saw yesterday at uh, Washington really off-putting because obviously Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg have enormous platforms, but they're very selective with what you know, they consider misinformation and hate. Um, and you know, I think that's quite dangerous. I think that the situation is extremely dangerous in a large number of ways. And one of them is that these are private companies. And in that sense, uh, they are at liberty to uh, publish what they like and not publish what they don't like. And people can decide to patronize them or not patronize them, depending on what they think about it. And it seems to me that some of the politicians don't seem to understand this situation. But they're also very widely trusted and very widely used. And when they decide to skew the presentation without being forthright about it, and when they're caught, they start babbling like nitwits, uh, in, uh, unable to explain why they would spike one story saying, oh, well, it contains hacked information and we don't do that. And then someone points out that there was another story that was anti-Trump and contained hacked information and they didn't block it. And they're like, eh, bleh, 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 bleh. this disrupts trust in society in ways that I think uh, we really don't need right now. And so, and when you think of all the stuff that does go on online, and some of it is incredibly foul. I mean, as you know, I, I run a website that, uh, that is devoted to discussion of climate. And yet I find myself not only having to remove obscenities that are posted by people who like us as well as people who don't, but also every now and again someone will sneak in something, Holocaust denial. People would Holocaust mm. denial on our channel. And we, you know, we have to be alert like somebody did it, but they, they typed the word Jew as bracket DW. So the, the deteriorating atmosphere online, if you then discover that, in fact, you can't trust Facebook or Google or Wikipedia, then you're in a heap of trouble. And Donald Trump said something very interesting. The weird thing about Donald Trump is that from some method not used by normal people, he occasionally comes up with very good ideas. He talked about repealing that Section 230 
that says that these social media platforms are not publishers and cannot be sued for the stuff that is posted on them. And it's obvious that their business model would collapse completely mm-hmm. if they were not exempted from these kind of actions. But that's, you know, in a way, I think tough bananas for them. Lots of people have problems. Why shouldn't they be as accountable as a newspaper? And then all this rubbish wouldn't just get sprayed out there. They'd need quality control. It would, it would change the Internet dramatically. And this fear, well, they, and the people talk about, oh, you know, these platforms, they're stealing the ad revenue from newspapers. They shouldn't be allowed to post our stuff. Well, they don't post our stuff. They post links to our stuff. They lead people to our stuff. They don't reprint our text and then put an ad on it. So people seem to have a lot of trouble seeing what's happening. But suppose that these platforms couldn't just allow you to put up whatever foul rubbish it happened somehow to strike you that you should put up there without being held accountable for it. We get much back, I think, to a much better model of people who take responsibility for what they put out there. And it might, they might well be partisan organs, right? What you're going to get from the New York Times is not what you're going to get from the New York Post. Mm-hmm. But to have these, these companies in this weird consequence-free zone run by, by people who seem to have a like-whatever-man attitude and then reflexive liberal attitudes, and then they start torquing what they're putting up there. I mean, again, with the, with the climate discussion nexus, we have these videos on YouTube, and they're always posting these warnings from Wikipedia saying, me and the climate deniers are a bunch of bozos, which amuses our audience more than it alarms them. But in a way, they just leave it alone. Will you? You're either putting up what everybody thinks, or you're taking responsibility for the content, and you're willing to be held accountable for it. And when you try to fall between the two stools, you get a lot of abuse and a lot of irresponsibility. And who in their right mind would say that's what we need right now? Irresponsible abuse. There's not enough irresponsible abuse. Go for it. Right. I mean, it's so it's okay to post Holocaust denial stuff. It's okay to post uh, Louis Farrakhan and his hate, uh, Jew hate, uh, and the Ayatollah. He's okay to to threaten uh, the evisceration of Israel. Um, but a Joe Biden story, that's no good. Yeah, oh, there was there was somebody was complaining recently on my Twitter feed that there was on one of the major social media platforms. Someone had put up a picture of two black women uh, who, for some reason, had almost no clothes on. Um, and they were carrying the severed heads of two white people, a man and a woman. And somebody had said, excuse me, but you shouldn't have that up. And they were, oh, don't you dare interfere with our artistic expression. And I thought if this was reversed, if it was two white women carrying the heads of a severed black couple, it would be down like that and the account would be canceled and so on. But there's this weird combination of anything goes and nothing goes. Like you've got these half-libertarian, half-Puritan people who seem incapable of thinking about what they're doing. Um, and, and this, to me, at least come clean with it. But, yeah, you can, you can, you can put up the Louis Farrakhan stuff. You can put up a most amazingly anti-one-race uh, stuff, provided the race is white people. Um, but other, And then you can't post like this professor at the University of Ottawa is in trouble because they yeah. used the word Voldemort in a discussion. Um, and, and they were trying to explain that this was bad or talk about, well, what, has this word been reclaimed? And I was like, well, you can't say that word. Um, so so it's, this, it's this very strange combination of total permissiveness and an indignant defense of our right to do whatever with an absolutely Puritan refusal to allow certain ideas in that you pretend you're not doing. And imagine if the conservatives do get chased off Facebook and off of YouTube and off of Twitter. You know, do you think this is going to improve the mood on the right? Or is this going to lead QAnon and these other insane, evil conspiracy theories to become even more powerful? But these guys, 
uh, the, the tech giants, yeah. they don't seem to be capable of thinking about this. It's like they never left, uh, they never graduated from college. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if I'm going to, you know, if there's going to be hate out there, I want it wide out in the open so that I, I know what to be looking for. But there's there's this sense of so- soft censorship is okay. And well, it's okay, I guess, if it's caters your opinion but it's it's a dangerous creep into you know silencing you know those we don't agree with and that to me is where we're heading i think it's very dangerous and and um and that you know our industry doesn't speak up against it and 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 take a more defiant stand is concerning yeah and they say they're doing it i mean it's not, i don't expect the new york times to start publishing defense of the traditional family and the right to life. Fine. We know what the New York Times is, and the people who like it get subscriptions. The people who don't read it and go, can you believe they said that? But they're quite upfront about what they are. They're a liberal newspaper. They're good journalists, but you're getting a point of view. But with Twitter, because they're not publishers, or with Facebook, they're not publishers. They're not responsible for their content. And yet, they are yeah. saying, we're not going to publish some stuff we don't like. And then some of the stuff that they don't seem to mind, you can keep bring up Holocaust denial again. I mean, if there's Something worse than Holocaust denial. I never heard of it. And yet with that, it's like, yeah, whatever. And you think to yourself, how can you look at yourself in the mirror when you will not allow uh, stories about Joe Biden's son's suspicious dealings that might involve his dad? Uh, Partly because we all know this because you're afraid it might change the election outcome. Uh, And yet you'll allow Holocaust denial. And then you'll be all high and mighty and pious and say, we are the new leaders of society. Uh, and, and again, I think to me, it's not so much that it's legal censorship. It's not. And somebody else could start another social platform. But it is a violation of trust in a yeah. society that is running short of the stuff. And that is terribly worrying. Indeed it is. So we'll uh, keep talking as long as we can. John, I appreciate your time on this. Thanks for having me on. John Robson, you can read him in the National Post. He's also the executive director over at uh, Climate Change Nexus. And it is concerning, to say the least. If France is attacked, it's an attack on all democracies. I would like to express my solidarity with our French allies. And the terrorists won't make us back away from our principles. Here in Canada, we're going to fight to create a country that is proud of its principles, proud of its liberties, proud of its openness and our freedom of expression. To all my French friends, Canada is with you through this. I am with you. And that is the uh, sound right there of uh, the moment when French police uh, killed this knife-wielding terrorist who beheaded a an elderly woman at prayer and killed two others at Notre Dame Church in the city of Nice. And you also heard a message from uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, which I uh, thought set the right tone for this. But this was a savage killing, just when you read the... Um, you know, the aftermath of what happened, this guy yelling, Allo Akbar, um, as he killed these people. And there's zero dispute. This is terror. And of course, it comes just a week after, um, a couple of weeks after a French teacher was beheaded for using cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad as part of a civics class. But this attack comes on the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad and at a time where there's growing Muslim anger because of uh, France's defense of the right to publish the cartoons and where protesters have been taking to the streets and and several Muslim-majority countries denouncing France. And so uh, as allies, it's important that we stand up and, and defend this type of freedom. Christian Luprecht is a professor over at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University fellow also as well, as you know, him from the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, good to have you. This, um, these attacks are, uh, you know, they are savage. 
Yeah, but I think it doesn't come as a surprise. So the fishy S, the security dossier of uh, of French intelligence, uh, has uh, over 12,000 names on it, and about 6,000 of them are considered to be high risk. And there's simply not enough resources to monitor um, to monitor all the individuals. And I think uh, one of the challenges here is as that this demonstrates that there are. Uh, a, uh, a a small but important small fraction of uh, of individuals who are prepared to go to uh, lengths that are simply not acceptable. Um, in a democracy, our social contract is that we do not use violence to make our political disagreements or our ideological preferences uh, to communicate those. And uh, I think it's deeply troubling uh, when we have not just an isolated incident, but a pattern. And of course, in yeah. France, look, this goes back to well before 1997. The Plan Vigipirate has been in place in France for over 20 years. And so France has been struggling with this phenomenon. And of course, it, uh, uh, we had a paradigm shift in 2015. 15 uh, with the Bataclan attacks. Uh, um, and uh, I think it's a reminder for us that uh, this remains a persistent threat uh, to our societies, not just, of course, in terms of the violence, uh, but also in terms of the attempts to undermine the very basic values and democratic life that we cherish. Yeah, and they've raised security levels to the highest, um, you know, alert. And this is a person who was uh, 21 years old, said to be from uh, a Tunisian national who had uh, come into France from Italy. And uh, it's just the second attack in a few weeks. A couple of weeks ago, a teacher uh, was beheaded. I mean, it's it's savage. Uh, but what what is it about France that seems to be the kind of the epicenter for Europe? Yeah, I'd say so. That's a really good question because it's not just France per se. So the uh, the fishy S is particularly concentrated in Nice and Paris. And so uh, given the attacks and the, the locales of these two attacks, it maps onto what we know in terms of empirical patterns and sympathies for um, violent extremism um, in those particular in those particular locales. We also see the difference in uh, incidents of violence across Europe and that they're not evenly distributed across European countries. And so uh, there is a particular sort of setting within France and the very difficult relations that the French state um, seems to have with um, a certain um, minority communities. And I think it's not, uh, it's not fair to say that it's a difficult relationship with, for instance, immigrant communities or Muslim communities. It turns out that there's very particular communities. Often, uh, often they come from very conservative backgrounds. They come with relatively low skill sets, relatively low education. Um, and they, uh, they end up in Western countries and they end up extremely frustrated and in particular frustrated about sort of their own particular uh, circumstances. And this is a phenomenon that's particularly widespread in France and Belgium and uh, in the United Kingdom, which, uh, which explains why they are also particularly um, disproportionately afflicted um, by this particular challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not really a focal point, uh, terrorism. I mean, certainly it's been sidelined by the pandemic and, and years, I think, have uh, made a lot of us, you know, desensitized to, to the shock value of these kind of one-off attacks. But no question, I mean, the, the President uh, Macron has um, put more, thousands more soldiers in the street. I mean, there there's a very... It's very key and crucial uh, that Canada, and I liked Aaron O'Toole's message, I thought it was spot on uh, that the allies stand forward and make sure it's understood that these values we have um, will not be uh, diminished, um, you know, because we pander uh, to those who, who, you know, deem that there should only be one view. 
Yeah, I think there's two challenges around sort of what you've just laid out. One is that French security services have been stretched thin since 2015. And so uh, as France has to rely on the military, it means those are assets that are not available to uh, allies and to partners and to NATO to try to provide for regional and international security elsewhere. So what happens in France in this deployment of soldiers has a direct impact uh, and implication for Canadian interests and Canada's ability to assert its interests abroad. The other is, of course, the very troubling reaction by some global leaders and in some countries um, with regards to uh, denouncing the freedom of expression um, with which uh, they disagree in terms of uh, some sort of content. It's problematic for two reasons. One, of course, that uh, those are often countries that condone things such as anti-Zionism, that condone people uh, denying the Holocaust or so forth, but uh, at the same time, um, they themselves aren't prepared to then accept that in other countries there is a uh, um, uh, people enjoy freedom of expression that is not guided by by government or by sort of um, societal prerogatives. Uh, The other challenge is, of course, then this is now being used to curtail French sovereignty because the boycott Uh, that are being called basically mean that uh, um, uh, they're trying to bully France into changing the way it makes policy by trying to, uh, to, to outside of international law and outside the strictures of the United Nations, impose a very particular viewpoint. Uh, and that simply can't happen. And as Canada, we need to stand up and make sure that we will not be extorted to curtail our sovereignty when it comes to freedom of expression. Yeah, it, it creeps in very slowly, but by the time you realize it's happened, it's it, it's too late. But you know these soft targets, it's you know it's easy to go after a, um, it's it's more challenging to go after, let's say, a soldier, uh, but it certainly is far easy to go into a place of worship or a school uh, to, to take out, um, you know, or make your mark uh, as a, as we're seeing. I mean, the woman that was uh, beheaded today was like like a grandmother at prayer. And look, soldiers, police officers, those are often seen as symbols of the state. So when you're attacking those individuals, often people don't think of them as people. They think of them as the uniform that they wear and what that uniform stands for in terms of values and institutions. Um, But clearly when people are attacking, uh, not that that in any way um, makes any sort of violence ever in any way justifiable um, in terms of a Western society, but then when you go after people who are completely absolute innocent bystanders, um, I think uh, the the heinous nature of that, I think, should remind us that violent extremism and that people who sympathize with violent extremism simply have no place in our society. And I think as Canada, I mean, the reminder for us is uh, we are often, I think, uh, sort of benign neglect, think that, you know, we live in a peaceable kingdom here and it uh, can't happen here, or if it happens here, it's isolated. But, you know, that's what people in France would have said about 30 years ago. And so I think we need to ask ourselves what it is that we are doing right today so that in 20 or 30 years we don't look back and find ourselves in that sort of situation and go, oh darn, we should have thought about this harder to make sure that we should have done things right 25, 30 years ago um, in terms of uh, the societal conditions that we laid. So I think there's some hard lessons for Canada to be learned here uh, going forward if we want to maintain the peaceful kingdom that we live in. And um, given France has been targeted now twice in a couple of weeks with the same kind of, um, you know, beheading and, and, and message sent, do we um, raise our security levels here? Will, it be, will we start to see uh, copycat situations? And it's not that we haven't, Christian, as you well know, had situations. They just don't get reported and they certainly don't get called terrorist. I mean, a, um, you know, an extremist a terrorist walks into a Canadian tire and tries to 
you know, bad. I mean, it's kind of laughed off. But I mean, we do have them. But it, should we be expecting kind of waves of this? Is there is there some message being sent particularly now? Well, if intelligence services do their job right, then they're able to identify these individuals. They're able to uh, make a reasonable risk assessment at who's a disproportionate risk, and they're able to intervene early on in order to try to mitigate uh, that risk. I think the problem here was, especially in the case of this particular individual, that he probably wasn't on the radar of intelligence to begin with. So it meant that they really didn't have a chance of intervening. So sort of these uh, flying blind here is a is a considerable always concern for intelligence that they're going to miss something. So uh, to what extent are we going to bind the hands of our intelligence agencies to actually be able to do the job that they need to do in order to keep our society uh, our society safe? Um, and I think the, it, it, it raises sort of a broader question of what powers of the state are appropriate. Of course, in France, uh, France has long had sort of some of the most intrusive surveillance powers available and also some significant powers of censoring, for instance, certain internet sites. And we still see these incidents uh, of violence. Uh, I think what Canada certainly tactically will look at and what we've gotten very good at since 9-11 is coordination among intelligence services to see whether these individuals um, or sort of their circle of associates have any sort of links back to Canada or communicating with individuals in Canada. And that's certainly where CSIS, for instance, uh, will be working overtime uh, to try to identify any such links that might then subsequently pose a risk to uh, the Canadian public. Yeah, what a day. All right, Christian, I appreciate your insight always. Thank you for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Christian Leprec joining us tonight. And uh, we'll keep following that story. It's just heartbreaking, if not infuriating. He suggested that denunciation and general deterrence had to be paramount in such a terrible case. And that is the law without question. But the courts need help. And when someone pleads guilty in a situation where the courts are in this kind of trouble, uh, they do get extra credit. All right, that is uh, defense lawyer John Struthers, and uh, he's the lawyer for the man who unloaded a gun into a playground, as you heard in uh, the report during the news, and that uh, playground was filled with children, and two of those were sisters who got struck by the bullets. Well, he was sentenced today to just under 13 years for that. His name is Taquan Robertson. He is uh, 26, and he pleaded guilty earlier this month. Um, where he basically admitted, yeah, he hunted and stalked uh, his target. He wanted to kill him. And regardless of the 12 kids playing and where the target was standing, he opened fire anyway. And that's all because apparently he'd been insulted on social media. And then, of course, he went on the run for over a year and was only caught when a reward and a Canada-wide warrant led to his arrest. And so while he says he's sorry now, uh, maybe he's just sorry he got caught. Catherine McDonald is our Global News Radio, well, Global News is crime uh, reporter. Good to have you, Kath. Hi, Alex. How are you? Uh, good. I mean, this is a high-profile case. I mean, John Struthers is a terrific lawyer. Um, he was lucky to get this uh, lawyer. And um, Justice McMahon is a, tough, is, a, is a fairly tough judge. I mean... 13 years, the Crown wanted 15, defense asked for 10, they met somewhere in the middle. But I think a lot of people, given the gravity, given the fact that, you know, without any regard, you know, just reckless disregard, uh, you know, at the time of this shooting with all these kids, broad daylight, a lot of people will say it's not enough. And the mother of these little girls, uh, I spoke to her today, and she's disappointed. And she, you know, says her children will never be the same. And uh, I asked her, she still lives in that complex in Scarborough, and I said, do they ever go out there anymore? And she said, nobody goes there because everyone has been traumatized by that shooting. 
And uh, so, you know, this was what Justice McMahon is trying to do, is send a message of, as as you heard from uh, John Struthers, denunciation and deterrence. And the question is, uh, will this time, will this sentence be enough uh, for Taquan Robertson to change and to come out of jail uh, or prison a different man? And, you know, John Struthers argues that um, many of the, this is about gang lifestyle, many of the people who, uh, are accused of this kind of violent crime, they, they don't, their only choice in life, he says, is either, you know, they're lured by the money of being uh, selling drugs and, and being part of a gang. He said the option for them is working at Foot Locker for minimum wage. And he said that isn't an option for many of them when they are lured by, uh, you know, how much money they can make uh, in the drug trade. And, um, you know, so he said, I have seen gang members come out of prison reformed. And, uh, so that that is the ultimate goal here is that Mr. Robertson does come out different. Well, you sure hope so, because it's not his first run in with the law. I mean, he's got firearms, uh, you know, convictions in his past. And so, you know, here we go again. So, you know, and, and, and to the point of I understand the argument will be, well, he spared the family a trial and that saves court costs. Well, that's great. I mean, the bottom line is if he didn't get caught thanks to a Canada-wide warrant and, a, and a, a reward money of 75 grand, you know, he'd probably still be out there on the run. And I don't think he'd be sorry at all. Yeah, and that's what the mother of the victim said to me. She said he, you know, you know, John Struther said, or and even the judge said, as soon as he was arrested, he pleaded guilty. And when I said to John Struthers, I said, well, you know, it doesn't equate here. Why? <laughs> he was on the run for more than two years. So I, I don't see how that is really, um, you know, why that would be taken into account. And he said, well, consider my client's options. He said he was, uh, you know, he was fearful of retaliation. Uh, but, you know, the mother of the girl, That's his says, choice. Well, <laughs> exactly. The mother of the girl says he got caught on another. He was uh, caught on another. You know, they were doing a takedown and he was caught on a, on something completely different. In the meantime, today, we heard that he's now um, going to be a father. So, you know, while he's been on the run, he, he's been with a woman and he's now going to be a father. So um, that was one of the things the judge mentioned was maybe now that he is going to be a parent, he will understand differently the consequences. And you and I know as parents of young children, how this would terrify would be would have been terrifying. And interviewing the fam, the mother over the, you know when this happened, I know that uh, this was a terrible crime for that community and for her ch- children as well. Yeah, because I mean they were both hit. Thankfully, they didn't get killed, um, but they are going to have lifelong injuries that are going to go far beyond. I mean, Taquan Robertson will be just shy of um, 40 years old when he gets uh, out, possibly sooner with the, with the justice system, with the way it works. Um, but, you know, this mother is going to have to, you know, spend her whole life taking care of those girls. And and, and, and as I understand, you know, they're going to need therapies their whole life. Right. And she was saying, I asked her to have the girls heard about the sentence and she's away. They're with their father. And she said, oh, they will hear. But we, she says, I try to protect them from uh, hearing about the, what happened to them, I try. I don't want to remind them, even though they have those physical scars. And we saw from the diagrams that they did, uh, you know, in court for their victim impacts, that they really uh, they remember that day vividly. It's it's something they're old enough that it is not something they're going to forget. 
Yeah, normally when you get a victim impact statement, it's written out. But in this case, uh, you know, you get those uh, drawings that only a little child can do, the stick figures. And, um, you know, they basically drew out what they remember. And it's it's pretty heartbreaking when you see it through the eyes of a child, uh, how they saw it that day. And um, the reality is, you know, we keep asking at what point is enough going to be enough? Everyone thought it would be enough when it was Jane Kreba. But, mm-hmm. you know, here we are. I mean, if, if, if it's not two little girls playing in a playground among 12 kids. If that's not the snapping, I just don't know what is anymore. Yeah. This is the most egregious case uh, as the, as the judge said, and this was reckless disregard for community safety. And uh, you know, the other interesting part of this and the mother was quite upset about this is that um, along with pretrial custody, you get a credit 1.5 to one for every day you've served. Justice McMahon actually uh, talked about how, Right now, he, you know, Taquan Robertson's guilty plea has saved the court uh, a trial during a time where it's very difficult to to carry out a trial because of COVID-19. So he said, you know, given that's the case, he goes, I'm going to give him two for one credit um, as well. Because, you know, right now, as you know, many of these trials can't even go ahead. and There's a huge backlog. So, uh, in fact, next month, uh, the two other co-accused are slated to have their trial. And, you know, as you know, with Manassian, for example, mm-hmm. it's, it's really difficult to, to actually carry out a physical trial. I've been attending the trial of Adam Strong, accused of you know, murdering these two teenagers out in Oshawa, and only 10 people are allowed in the courtroom on top of the staff. And, you know, the public interest is far greater than that. So they have a huge overflow room, and, and some days there are dozens of people in there. But it's, yeah. it's a very diff- difficult thing to do logistically is have a trial right now. So... Uh, you know, the mother said to me, why should they be getting credit for that as well? Right. And, well, exactly. Uh, and, 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 and and that would set precedent. I mean, that's the thing that drives me crazy. It's that, that, you know, his sentence and the deal that he put forward, you know, for the next two or whomever follows behind, this then sets precedent. And, and you can argue, um, you know, down from there. And so, again, if you ever want serious penalties in this country, it's just, uh, you know, these judges aren't helping. I, I respect Justice um, McMahon, but man, he, he went soft today. Well, that's what the family feels. I mean, John Struthers feels it's, you know, uh, harsher than he had liked. Uh, And I'm sure the Crown would tell you that it wanted, of course, more. So, um, you know, this is the way it played out today. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the two co-accused who are not being named to give them a right to a fair trial, given it's so close to their trial. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there is video surveillance of that day. Uh, So it's and uh, so, you know. If a jury is picked and they see this video, it, it shouldn't be that difficult to figure out what, you know, how, how this case might play out. Yeah. Well, we'll stay tuned for that busy time in the courts. And uh, the courts are so severely broken, but nonetheless, great job. Thank you, Kath. I appreciate it. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Catherine McDonald joining us. And I get it. There are a lot of logistical issues with the courts, but this is a plea. I mean, to me, it's just a, yeah, here's your sentence. Away you go. But to give them credit, two to one, give me a break. Give me a break. Thanks for listening. You can, of course, join us Monday through Friday, 630 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point here on Global News Radio. 9-1-1 on a new night, Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.